Dead Source, your Amy Klobuchar fancast. Yeah. No. What? Yeah, she uh, she dropped out. Did, did you not hear? Wait, let me do this again, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah you got this. Welcome to Beat a Dead Source, your Pete Buttigieg fancast. Uh, you know, actually, this really breaks my heart to tell you. Wait, what? This time? He, yeah, he dropped out, too. Oh, wait, I got it. I got it. I yeah, got yeah. it. Welcome to Be the Dead Source, your home for Tom Steyer. Everything you could want. Yeah, yeah he actually was the first one to drop out. Uh, welcome to Be the Dead Source, your home for being sad, I guess. I mean, if you're a moderate. Yeah. Yeah, if you're a moderate, for sure. It's a bad day. If you're progressive, you still got... Bernie's doing fine. Uh, we'll see how long that holds up against a and consolidated... Who, who are you, Moderate people? base, but... Warren's got some money. Warren is not going to last much longer either, unfortunately. We'll see. I hope. I was. I hope. I, I was listening to her campaign manager, and she seemed very positive. So I think that is always a good sign when a campaign manager thinks that they have a chance. <laughs> how was everybody's? <laughs> how was everybody's week? Kind good. Kind of a bummer. Yeah. Bummer. I mean, yeah. So first of all. Yesterday, today, the sad news, my top two candidates dropping out, as you um, just found out. Sorry again. Sorry about Tom Steyer. Yeah, actually. No, you were really... Well, he was my third, but he dropped out for... Yeah. Well, he's... I don't know. He's grown on me. He's interesting. Okay. Um, But anyway, he's he's not in the f***s anymore. So, (laughs) um, there's that. There's also, you know, the coronavirus sweeping across the globe. My, 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 corona. I don't know if that's really the... An appropriate attitude, but okay. I'm a big fan of (laughs) survival of the fittest and Darwinism. So I think this coronavirus thing, it's going to work out just fine. Well, so we are specifically not having a politics uh, episode this week. Well, coronavirus is not politics. That is just death. Oh, there's a lot of politics around how it's being handled. Or not handled. Yeah, but we're not going to talk about it. It's going to come up. To fill people in, we recorded half a live cast for the State of the Union a couple, three weeks ago, (laughs) and it was like pulling teeth a little bit. We kind of got frustrated and gave up. (laughs) So, so I don't think you'll ever hear that, but it was, it was interesting and uh, gave me an idea for another episode I want to do later on. Oh boy. No, I like the concept of, of like live casting and stuff, but I think maybe we can do, I I think maybe a debate makes more sense. Maybe, but they all are also very long. So, I don't know. There's pros and cons. Um, maybe if we did something where we just don't actually pause the debate, mm-hmm. so we keep our commentary to a minimum. But but the point is... But then at that point, um, what's the point of listening to us? If we finish it, we could still put both of those up if yeah. we want. Maybe. But, um, no, I think I think you make a really good point. I, I personally, that episode really kind of burned me out on talking oh, politics for a, a little minute. And so we are talking about something totally different today. I will say, if I can bring up one other like little tidbit. So my wife's birthday was last night, and we went out for a really fancy dinner, and it was great. And we got talking politics as <laughs> we do. And I was trying very hard, like just let everybody else talk because I like I talk about this stuff all the time, obviously. <laughs> and uh, my stepson's fiance and my wife. We're saying that Buttigieg was their their first candidate mm-hmm. at the same time as the news alert was coming through my phone that Buttigieg had dropped out. Aww. It was like, Happy I felt bad for my wife because it was her birthday. <laughs> but like, you'd see like, oh, all right. Well, and for me, I was just like, eh, 
He took too much money from billionaires. I'm good. I don't have a problem with... Well, alright. I liked Pete. Um, I understand the... I don't really want billionaires funding campaigns either. But I think they do right now. And if that is that helps you win, then... Yeah, it doesn't disqualify. You know, I think... But no, I... I, in the interest I think of he not. was just yeah he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. I will say Pete is extremely young, and I'm really interested to see what he looks like eight, twelve, sixteen years down the line mm-hmm. because I think he could be a really good, really interesting candidate. I hope to God not for oh because that would mean Trump won again. There you go. Yeah, I'm with you. I feel it. Um, so, but anyway, today we're talking about not politics. Yes, in our misguided attempt to. Evade a political discussion. We've chosen to talk about philosophy, which is so Yay. super not related to politics at all. I'll find a way to bring it back around. I, you won't have to work very hard. But actually, um, we're the the philosophers we're talking about today were more personal philosophy rather than like political philosophy. You know, if you if you think about like your Hobbes and Kant and, and Locke and, and all those guys, those are philosophers who had very specific direct beliefs pertaining to like government the, the and structure the of society. And, yeah, exactly. Can I, can Rousseau, I, right? Can I mention two things? So first of all, I want to like tell people at home, I'm an idiot about all this stuff. So if you're confused about like, if not a single name that Andy <laughs> just said, uh, like makes any sense to you. I'm going to be the idiot in the conversation who's going to be trying to ask questions <laughs> so he can understand what's going on. But I was going to ask the two of you, because you seem pretty excited about doing an episode on philosophy. Mm-hmm. Can I ask, like, what made you guys so excited to talk about this? I don't mean to put you on the spot. Yeah, but also, well, I'm definitely going to put you on the spot right now. I love philosophy. Um, I like kicking around the big ideas. Uh yeah, I agree. So, like, I mean, I would... And this is my white privilege, for sure, that allows me to enjoy that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, people who are, say, like, actively being oppressed are not really worried about the degrees of personal freedom and, so, like... Right, the The idea being that, like, if you have white privilege, if you have more money, if you have more stability, you have the time and uh, the time and uh, interest... And I'm not being politically ex- uh, oppressed so that I can express my opinions freely and things like that. Right. So I, I put it to a specific experience that I had, like, out in the wilderness, like, camping and just looking up at the stars at night and just seeing, like, so many more stars than you normally see with light pollution in mm-hmm. the city. And just, like, being awestruck at... What's it all about? Like, what are the big questions? Like, what what are we doing here? Why are we here? Well, I'm really glad that you just told that story because I'm always doing reading and listening and stuff about philosophy because I just enjoy it. I forget exactly what I was reading at the time, but they were talking about how people have these sort of experiences that put them in touch with something beyond the mundane, beyond the daily life, right? And and Going out into nature, what people cite stargazing as mm-hmm. a huge uh, that that for a lot of people is is something that connects them to the the universe lar- the larger universe. Yeah, it's it's a wider perspective. You can mm-hmm. see more. Uh, you feel than, small. Yeah, you feel mm-hmm. small. There's but connected. Yeah, I had a, sorry. Well, on my twenty first birthday. I had been volunteering on the Standing Rock Reservation with a Lakota tribe. 
And they're, like I say, tribe, but a bunch of people living in like rundown houses and stuff like that. And uh, we were, we helped out around the area. There were other volunteers that came in and tried to help out. But what they would do is they were religious volunteers and they would fix the church in town and ignore everybody else. <laughs> we like, we replaced the asbestos flooring in the, uh, in the elementary school. We helped build a playground behind the school and stuff like that. So they, the people in the community liked us and they invited us to a sweat lodge that happened on the same night as my birthday. And I have like, I like got out of there like super early. They go in these stages where it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. They're like five stages. And I got through to the second one. I was like, nope, I'm out. But like, I was like really lightheaded as laying down on a towel and I'm on a reservation. So there's no light pollution anywhere. Mm. I go lay, lay out behind these people's house and it's just a big open field as far as you can see to the horizon. And in the sky, there is to the left of me, the most beautiful like stars you've ever seen in your life. In the middle, a full moon that like is bright to the point where it looks like it's daylight. <laughs> and to the right side, there was a lightning storm. Wow. And it was like that moment has stuck with me. I mean, it's been 20 years since that happened to me. And like I like that yeah. stuck with me. And like I was I, I, want I felt to, really spiritual <laughs> after that. For sure. I want I, I, I want to find a way to extract that image from your mind and have Bob Ross paint it for me. Uh, it was like I, I have. But I have like there's I have a terrible memory. But that I it's crystal clear. I can like anytime I close my eyes, I've got it right there. I'm sorry that Bob Ross probably won't be painting that for you. Uh, maybe a clone? I like, like a little collab just you know? to go like look through his videos. He had to paint stars in one of them. Yeah, there you go. But so anyway. anyway so um, so for today, our, our goal, or we wanted to talk about the existentialists, and specifically the 20th century existentialists focusing on um, Camus and Sartre. So I wanted to. You're gonna you're gonna explain what existentialism is. I am. Like In fact, I wanted to kind of take everybody back, actually all the way back to Socrates for just a couple quick can, minutes. Can, can you give us like to a, lay some a, foundation here? Just like a, a clip of a definition of existentialism. Just what what is that? Well, yes, but I, I think uh, my opinion is it is, spoilers to, to. I think it would be more interesting or more impactful because for us in our lives, right? These concepts of existentialism are actually really pretty similar to the whole foundation of of our modern society, and they seem very intuitive and obvious to us. So their impact and the the revolutionary nature of it is, I think, kind of lost without going through the the history. Okay, sure. but just Go to ahead. bring bring people up to speed real quick, existentialism is just <laughs> if you insist. Existentialism, in a nutshell, would be that existence precedes essence. That's kind of the the tagline. Okay, I say cool. that reluctantly. I, I can run with that. Yeah, no, okay. that, that gives people that that gives me like a handhold to grab onto. Mm -hmm. So let's climb this rock. But right. Plato. So well, Plato actually sort of Plato, but Socrates really. I'm, I want to start with Socrates because it's a very important concept, and of course, it's one of the oldest in in philosophy. Everybody for the most part, has heard of Socrates, I hope. But he's ancient Greek. Um, technically, we don't know for sure that Socrates was an actual person. There's lots of references to him, but it could be 
like just a very famous character that Plato came up with that became almost as good as real in theory. Whatever. So like like Batman then, basically the same as Batman. But he also got I'm persecuted. Just, yeah, he he also got persecuted by the Society for Corrupting the Youth. Like Batman, he did. He did. This is so. so the, I don't know that that would have gotten made up. Maybe. Well, there's no government records and stuff. Really, all we have are plays and books written by Plato and some other people around that time. But he he taught. So all we have are like secondhand references. He taught him. Plato, who taught Aristotle, who taught Alexander the Great, ostensibly. Yeah, yeah. So. There's there's like this lineage mm-hmm. of philosophy that kind of started with Plato, uh, Socrates. Yeah, definitely. And Socrates, the big the big takeaway from Socrates for our purposes today, because there's a lot to talk about with Socrates. The big thing is that what Socrates said that the only thing that I know is I know nothing, and that's I think a pretty pretty solid part of our modern repertoire right? right a lot of people know that there's sort of a corollary to that which is basically that everyone is a fool but socrates would say i'm less of a fool because i know that i'm a fool right and I mean, but that's the only difference right and i i've heard several times like the beginnings of wisdom are knowing that the more you know the less you know yeah. that you know Exactly, exactly. So there's also this important idea of forms. So if I have sure. this coffee mug, it's just a representation of this perfect coffee mug that exists in wherever forms are. And um, Formland. if I broke this coffee mug, I haven't broken the idea of coffee mugs. So there could still be more coffee mugs made after breaking this one. That this one's just an example of it. But if it was, like, the perfectly made one, then it would be, like, representing that form. Yeah, that's actually getting into Plato now. And that is, yeah, Plato referred to it as the world of forms. That, you know, I'm holding another coffee mug in both of these coffee mugs. Neither of them is the truest concept of coffee mug they're all rough replicas and and people will talk about plato's cave and the concept of plato's cave is that essentially that our material world that we see is roughly equivalent to seeing shadows on the wall of the cave of these real objects Mm -hmm. so this coffee mug is like a shadow cast on the wall by a fire you know there's like you know there's one guy with, like, a coffee mug fetish at home who's super excited about this episode right <laughs> and now. And you know what? I hope he <laughs> listens all the way to the end, because yeah. there's probably not going to be a lot more coffee mugs. Thanks for uh, thanks for sharing with your friends, Gary. Oh, I was going to call him Steve. Steve? Eh, I don't know. Gary, Gary seems like a weird Gary? coffee mug anyway. pervert. <laughs> pervert. So anyway, um, so yeah, absolutely. And, and this that's really important, because... Um, as we were just talking about with existentialism being that the existence precedes essence, this concept of forms Im- implies that essence precedes existence, meaning the coffee mug, the concept of coffee mug exists before I held one in my hand. The one I'm holding in my hand is only a, a rough replica of the true, the, the God coffee cup. Right, so we're so we're building up this idea of forms that people probably don't readily have like in their minds nowadays. Yeah, it's not super accessible. We're, we're going to probably knock that idea of forms down. Oh, for sure. So fast forward about what two thousand years to Jesus, the eighteen hundreds. Okay, no, never mind. With Soren Kierkegaard, 
Uh, actually, we should make a quick pit stop at, at Hegel. Hegel sort of is the, the end of that line of thinking, that, um, essentialism thinking, which is the term for that, where, in fact, his, the, he belonged to a school of thought called, uh, idealism, which really took that concept of forms to an extreme. There's an ideal, and, and really the importance of this is how it pertains to humans, right? Not coffee mugs. So, Hegel would say that there is sort of a, an ideal human out there. There's a human nature. There's a sort of a, a well, an ideal human that all of us are essentially trying to uh, attain to and, and replicate as best we can. Well, thanks, guys. It's nice to hear that you think so much of me. <laughs> I appreciate so, right. <laughs> yes, you are the perfect form of human Thank to you. which we all aspire. Um so that's Hegel, and the next guy that we want to really talk about a little bit here is Soren Kierkegaard, who is this, I think, Danish philosopher, early to mid-1800s, I think he died in like 18, the 1840s. Mini fact check. After hearing the recommendation from Wikipedia as to how Kierkegaard's name should be pronounced, I'm more confused than ever. Here's how it sounds. Soren Aubu Kierkegaard. Am I right? Anyway, Kierkegaard died in Frederick's Hospital in Denmark on November 11, 1855, after having collapsed in the street over a month before. Some say he died from complications of a fall he took during his youth, some say it was from pot disease, a form of tuberculosis, and some say he died of a broken heart. No one says that, I just made that last one up. Anyway, back to the show. Mini fact check. Um, he died kind of young, but... Kierkegaard was this, he is a bit of a conundrum. Basically, he's considered the father of existentialism. And the big kind of breakthrough is, is exactly that. This change of thinking. Existence precedes essence. Meaning, first you come into existence as a human. And then you spend your life defining your, what it means for you to be human. And so it's a, it's a very deeply personal, um, liberal in the classical sense philosophy where every individual has power and autonomy over their life. So Kierkegaard would say, and I'm probably still mispronouncing his name, but I'm trying to do the most proper it's not pronunciation. Kierkegaard. It's heard... not because something about the Danish language or something like it's not actually pronounced it, but I'm still probably butchering it. Søren Aarby Kierkegaard. Um, but yeah, Soren Kierkegaard, and he, um, so existentialism. And the other important thing to take away, I think, from, from Kierkegaard is this concept of taking a leap of faith. So Kierkegaard would say, well, look, you have to define your own essence. So there's two ways that you kind of get lost in that endeavor. One is by, uh, is getting lost in the finite. Which is essentially this idea, of, and I think a lot of us today would re really relate to this, this concept of you just do what's prescribed to you. You Oh, you go to high school, then you go to college, then you go get a job and buy a house and get married and blah, 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 right? And getting lost in the finite would mean you're just doing this because that's what everyone says you're supposed to do, but there's not really anything in it for you. Yourself gets lost by this too clearly defined path. Um, you're not making any choices really for yourself. But then there's the other side of it that Kierkegaard talks about this getting lost in the infinite or, um, and, and he, this is a huge part of his writing is that, that he, who, there's this famous quote, he says, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. 
Meaning, you get lost in the infinite. There's so many choices. What can you do after you graduate high school? Well, you can go get a job as a car repair shop. You can get a job as a waiter. You can get a job as a blah, blah, blah. You can go to college. You can go to... There's an infinite number of things that you could go do at any time. And a lot of people get overwhelmed with all of the infinite choices that they have available with them and end up not making any decisions. Decision paralysis? Yeah, yeah. Um, what do they call it? Analysis paralysis is the pithy way to say that. Ah. Um, yes, exactly. So how does that clash with the ideas from Socrates? So Socrates, so Kierkegaard really seized upon the Socratic method and the understanding that you don't know, you don't know any of this, but he would really push against that Platonic forms concept of which, which is of course that essence precedes existence. So Kierkegaard would say, no, you've got to go through your life, you've got to make free choices, which is super hard to do. And that's what your kind of your focus should be on. And and at some point he says, you reach this point where you can have all of the information in the world and that's leading you towards analysis paralysis, or you can have not enough information and and get lost in the finite. At some point you've got to make this leap of faith, he would say. Now for Kierkegaard that leap of faith was into christianity albeit not in good terms with like the christian christianity at the time the you know um especially the catholic church um they they did not get along because he had this very different view of it he said you're not just a christian you can't just be say you're a christian say you believe in jesus and that's the end of it you have to work every day at making the christian choice at living those values every single day now i think that gosh i, I wish he was still around to say that to some of our modern christians here i was gonna say luckily the christian church is totally taking care up. of that yeah. and really right. nipped it in the bud right so um but that's you know he was always at odds with the with the Christian with Christianity, which at the time was mostly the well, dominant culture. Well, yeah, for sure, especially in Europe. I don't know whose philosophy it was, but I like one one philosophy I always liked in terms of the belief in God was very practical. It was like, where's the downside? Like, might as well believe in God because, like, if that's yeah, Pascal's wager. That's Pascal. Yeah, yes, Pascal's wager, and like it, it seems similar to that in that. Like, well, maybe there's no heaven, but if there is, like, why why not? Why not go ahead and... Well, so, yes. Repent on your deathbed or whatever. The So one of the troubles with that, of course, is, well, at that point, well, what about all of the other religions? You may as well believe in those too, right? By the same logic? Sure. So at that point, now you're just buying into everything? <laughs> um, well, and, and I would question if you... if. If you are solely basing your rational <laughs> yeah. analysis on Pascal's wager, have you really uh, believed in anything? So, ooh, so that's a huge point actually with Kierkegaard because uh, that was his. That is exactly what his problem with Pascal's with Pascal in general was. <laughs> Sorry, I'm kicking out now. No, um, no, he. It's... So he like really. He was like no. There's no faith in there. In fact, um, Kierkegaard and and you're our our resident um, Christian, Christian, so we might sure. we're yeah. gonna I'm gonna differ, bounce it to you in just a second. But Kierkegaard's sure. big biblical story that he hung a lot of his philosophical stuff on was the story of Abraham and Isaac. Right. So Abraham and Isaac. Um, for those who don't know, probably a lot of people are familiar with this story. But um, God tells Abraham that you have to sacrifice your son on this altar. And 
Abraham's like, well, that's a messed up thing to ask me to do, but I'm going to go do it. Um, so he gets ready with his knife and he leads Isaac to the altar and then God stops him and is, is basically like, well, Psych. I was, I was just seeing if you would be willing to. I can't believe you it. almost did that. Don't, yeah, don't. I think God was the... such a dick in the old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but know. it was, but it was about, um, it was about having faith in God's plan. So exactly. And, and Kierkegaard's thing is in order to have that faith in order to take that leap of faith you've got to essentially uh, uh, stop trusting 100% in your capacity for reason mm-hmm. that is an absolute necessity in order to take that leap of faith you've got to say okay reason got me up to here but it's not going to get me any further when you hear this argument all the time like god gave us the ability to reason why would he expect us to leave that at the door when it comes to this, that, or the other thing. Like when it when it comes to, mm-hmm. like the the I always think of the literal word of the Bible in that like homophobic people pull this one part out of Leviticus, uh, yeah. but like ignore the part where you have to stone to death people who eat shellfish or right. who wear like two different kinds of cloth. And I don't think it's reasonable to expect them to believe that stuff. I'm not saying believe all of it. I'm saying like. Go ahead and think about it in context a little bit. Well, and I'd love to come back to some of the biblical discussion because I think there's there's a whole discussion to be had about the fact that that's from the Old Testament anyway. And Jesus, when Jesus came and died and everything, that was to wipe away the Old Test, the Old mm-hmm. uh, Covenant. The Old Covenant is null and void. We've got this New Covenant. So all of those laws <laughs> from the Old Testament are not really supposed to be a part of Christianity. They were supposed to kind of be thrown out. It's supposed to become more of like a eh, mythological history of where we came from. In, 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 you I, you in still take opinion, it seriously but, if you're Jewish. For well, sure, for, sure, for right. sure. But at any rate, yeah. So... So that's that takes us up through Kierkegaard, who establishes this idea of of existentialism. Where did, did you skip over Hegel, proceeds, or did we go? Uh, I touched on him just briefly, okay. just as that German idealist. And and really, the reason I even bring up Hegel is because Kierkegaard's writing was very directly a rebuttal to Hegel. Specifically, that's who Kierkegaard really had a, a beef with. In, in, so, in, in what way? So, like, what he. He disagreed at the very foundation of that ex- existentialism versus essentialism. Mm-hmm. And also, I think, you know, Hegel just sort of being the most recent prominent philosopher in that line, that's who Kierkegaard kind of directed a lot of his stuff at. Yeah. But, Makes sense. But that brings us to existentialism. Now, Kierkegaard's existentialism involves this leap of faith. And Kierkegaard, like I say, died in, like, the mid-1800s. So, then, at the end of the... 19th century and into the 20th century, actually really the beginning of the 20th century, we get um, some new some new people on the scene here, which is our main focus for today. So there's Albert Camus, there's Jean-Paul Sartre. I think also it might be worth it to mention Simone de Beauvoir, if, if you know her at all. These three really are the, the bedrock of modern existentialism. I just, I'm just imagining them like walking towards us in slow motion with like sunglasses on. So they were actually, um, they were all three really good friends during the German occupation of Paris in World War II. Um, they were real close. And then after World War II, Sartre and, and, um, de Beauvoir 
really became pretty devout Stalinist, which was oh, cool. we'll, we'll, yeah, <laughs> we'll come back around to that. <laughs> um, and Camus was not a capitalist, but not willing to throw his lot in with Stalin, and so they had a big old falling out. But at any rate, um, yeah, so let's talk about... Who do you want to talk about first, Sartre or Camus? Uh, I was just going to say that Sartre is older, so... Meaning he... I mean, they're contemporaries. He died later? Uh, he was born earlier. He was born earlier, too, okay. Yeah, so let's start with Sartre. He was born first. Um, I mean, they were contemporaries. They really but, were. They were, yeah. Um, but it also gives kind of a leaping point because um, part of Camus' uh, criticism of existentialism would be would be relevant after talking about Sartre. For sure. Actually, I'm, and just for the audience's sake here, he just mentioned uh, Camus' critiques of existentialism, and we just finished introducing him as an existentialist. And I think that's kind of he, he would not have he would not have accepted that title hundred percent. And it's kind of one of the funny things about existentialism is as a belief structure, it hinges very much on not putting labels on any things because you don't want to fall into just being a mockery of that that thing. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But no, no true existentialist would ever call themselves an existentialist. They would have a big problem with if you called if they heard you calling them one. So Sartre was um, a novelist and a playwright, and um, part of his like foundation is this idea of defamiliarization. Like if I suddenly didn't have any frame of reference and I just saw your armchair that you're sitting in and I had never like in that moment I never had the experience of knowing what an armchair or the context of like what you do with an armchair before the armchair itself is kind of a weird thing mm. even even the word armchair like that's just a bunch of letters arranged in a row and it's it's a sound that you make with your mouth it's it's this idea that everything in our lives that is very familiar is only familiar because like you were raised in it. It's been your only experience that you've had. And if you isolate something and really kind of analyze it, life is really weird sometimes. Yeah. And I think the word of, uh, of choice is absurd. Yeah. I love the armchair is a good example. One that really resonates with me is this. You think about, say, like an alien coming to check out Earth, right? And they see us. What they basically see is for just as by way of an example, every time the Earth reaches a certain uh, or, or a spot on the Earth reaches a certain like angle towards the sun, right? This rock spinning in space kind of has just the right angle that everybody sits down in these weird, you know, chopped up trees and put a bunch of heated up animal flesh and plant matter onto plates and sit down on those chopped up trees and, and eat them as, like, ceremoniously. Like, the concept of eating dinner right. is so weird to, like, if you've never, if that's not a thing where you... And and that's like right. a your reference. that's like a fun, interesting, like little exercise. But what is mm -hmm. what is the greater meaning of that? The greater meaning of that is is that the things that we are doing, most things that we do, are steeped in tradition, mostly because of the culture that we came up in, and because and we most of the things that we do 
on a day-to-day basis are completely absurd, but we do them because that's what everybody else does, and it just makes sense. Or it doesn't just make sense, but it makes sense to us because this is the this is what we've been raised with. So, so the alternative is like you don't necessarily realize that you are completely free to do what you want. You're sort of locked in this idea of like, okay, well, I I need to have a job and I need to like sit down and eat dinner like in a, a traditional way. And, like, I have to live in this particular part of the country, in this particular part of the state. Mm. But really, like, what Sartre is trying to tell you is that a lot of that is artificial. Mm -hmm. A lot of that is, like, fake. Constructed or... I like the word artificial, I think, is the perfect one because it's created by man. It's Mm -hmm. an artifice. So you really could be a lot more free... If you looked at the world in that absurd way. So to tie this back to what we were talking about, uh, existence precedes essence, right? You don't have to do, you don't have to follow society's program. You do not have this path laid out that you have to follow. You can follow that path, but you're not beholden to it. So Sartre, um, Sartre, was it, no, was it Sartre or Camus who wrote about the waiter? That was Sartre. That was Sartre, yeah. So so this waiter, uh, this is the example that Sartre gives, but this waiter, he goes to work every day. Really kind of roasts this waiter. Oh, my God. Like, like, totally crushes him. Go ahead. So, um, basically, Sartre's um, indictment of this poor waiter who's just trying to make ends meet, right? Let's say the, the waiter is Gary, our coffee cup fetishist. Yes. Anyone listening to this podcast named Gary, I am sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Mediocre. <laughs> Not sorry. me, Gary. So, Go to um, hell. at any rate, uh, this, this waiter who goes to work every day and he does, basically he's, go, he's playing the part of a waiter. He does he's a great standing up job. Stiff. He does a great job. He says all the right things. He's got all the right cadence. He welcomes you in and he steps you know, really efficiently between the people that he's serving, like Sartre he says, tips his head too like too efficiently. The the at just the right angle to like sort of take your order. Uh-huh. Like it's as if he was like following a script, like clockwork. Yeah, like almost he, like, like a machine. Almost like a sociopath who doesn't have the capability for empathy, but like plays a part, so that way he can be part of society. I think kind Sartre of. is the sociopath here. Well, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. um, so um, he observes this waiter. And what does yeah. he what does he think about this waiter? So he says that this waiter is living in bad faith. And what he means by that is that this waiter, he his view of his life is I am a waiter. That is what I am. Uh someone asks me, well, you know, tell me about yourself. What do you say? Well, I'm a waiter. Right? That I that love is waiting. Um he said, Oh, his father was a waiter and his grandfather was a waiter. It's this noble not not necessarily really a but, totally unfair right, roast right, of this right. dude. <laughs> but but the idea but it could have been like it. it could have been like a lumberjack or like yeah, any number of things. Yep. It didn't matter what it was. But, but but that he didn't consider the life of being something else. That being a waiter was his existence and it was mm-hmm. it was overpowering like the possibility of other choices and if this right. sounds sort of reminiscent of something we were previously talking about it should this is really similar to kierkegaard's getting lost in the finite right 
you know, he, this guy is going about his life and just, he is a waiter. And so he's going to do waiter things. He's going to be the best waiter he can right. be. And that is what his life is going to be. And so Sartre would say, you, you don't have to, you can make any, you can leave that job. Nothing is stopping you. Only you are stopping you from leaving that job. You are free to leave that job. You are free to go be uh, an architect. First of all, not knowing anything about this dude, because the dude could be like a painter who's saving up money for college, right. and Sartre is just a jerk. Well, let, I mean, if, well, let's <laughs> to say, be completely let's honest, say, let's say this he's is a sculptor like... who has come up with a new cup that has a handle on it for hot beverages, and he is super into this cup. Let me tell you. Right. Well, then he... Oh, my he, God. He would be super Gary into... just had an orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> your, your sculptor would have to, like, think of himself first as a sculptor, and that, like... Right, he, he occupies the the physical state well, of the form of sculpt, and that's like that's what made this makes me think of is so many of us, at least in modern day, we have jobs, but the majority of us do those jobs to do another thing, be that our passion, or to send our kids to college, or keep a roof over our family's heads, or like work to live, hobby. not live to work, exactly. And it sounds like this waiter. Is living to work. He loves to wait. Well, all right. So first of all, let me just say... It's fulfilling his purpose, importantly. Right. Yeah. Let let me just be clear here. Or as Bernie would say, let me just be clear. (laughs) That was actually not bad. It wasn't bad. I was Uh, impressed. Anyway, so um, this waiter may be completely imagined and just fictionalized for the purpose of illustrating an example. Okay, so you can substitute any job. This waiter is not... It's not like... Sartre was actually, like, sitting in a cafe, jotting down all these mean, shitty things about that guy waiting at his friend's table. So what would, like, be, what would be living in good faith? If this guy's living in bad faith, what would be living in good faith for Sartre? So, living in good faith for Sartre, and this is really where he diverges from Kierkegaard, Søren Åby Kierkegaard. is uh, living in a, a truthful life. If you, if, if what, you know, doing what makes you happy, being free, he says, just, just be free. If you want to be a waiter, be a waiter, but do it because you want to, not because you feel like that is the only option available to you. Right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, some people need to be a waiter so they don't starve. So, yeah. so that is, Sartre would say, I'm not going to, um, necessarily inject my own personal thing here. Right. But Sartre would say that that's still living in bad faith because it's not the only way you can make money. Right. You could also go sit on a street corner and panhandle. You could also go sell your body for money. You could also go sell drugs for money. And those are just the illegitimate options. This is you can also me. go get another job. You can go learn another skill. You can go back to school. You could do anything. And, and Sartre also really had a beef with capitalism in general. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. Go, we could have gotten one. Hence the Stalinism that uh, previously mentioned. Well, a capitalist society, in Sartre's view has these incentives set up that you do kind of, like, fall into a script living your life under capitalism. Because yeah. of because of the necessity of money. It puts, it puts an artificial necessity on people that wouldn't exist if we were just, like, living in nature. But arguably, that's not actually any different from communism in that regard. Right. So, this, in terms of Cold War dynamics, yeah. <laughs> and this is the reason why Sartre ended up 
backing Stalin is because in those politics, it was one extreme or the other. If you weren't, if you did anything against that Russian Soviet government, that was pro, a pro capitalism. And, and also, you know, Sartre kind of had this Bernie Sanders view of capitalism where it's like, all capitalism is the most evil op version of capitalism. Fact check, fact check, fact check. And welcome back to Fact Check. Yeah, that's definitely not Bernie's position on capitalism. Here is Bernie in a CNBC interview with John Harwood that happened November of last year where he talks about global capitalism. How do you factor in uh, the significance of the fact that uh, modern global capitalism has substantially reduced poverty in other parts of the world. But when you talk about the global economy, you're right. Thank God. The terrible, terrible poverty that has been seen in the developing world, some of that is receding. That's great. On the other hand, you are looking at an unbelievably uh, and grotesque level of global income and wealth inequality. And, and you're also seeing not only massive income and wealth inequality, but in many countries, a movement toward increased authoritarianism mm -hmm. and away from human rights and democracy. If you missed it, that was Bernie Sanders saying, thank God for international capitalism, and then going on to talk about many of the weaknesses that capitalism holds. Anyway, back to the show. Back check, back check, back check. And, you know, it's a guy, he's a philosopher, so he's right. kind of prone to extremism. And I think that's, yeah, that's cool for it. I mean, this keeps on reminding me of, I had this guy in my car on Saturday night, and it was him and his wife, and they were telling me a little bit, because I'm delightful, and people like to share way too much with me, but he was saying that, like, he owns a family business, and his grandfather had done it, and his father had done it, and he got into it, and we had been talking about their son before, and their son, a grown man, mm -hmm. was really into, from the time he was young, training dogs, and got hmm. really good at it, like, trained celebrity dogs, and, oh. like, really, like, really was, like, loving doing this. And their other son went into the family business with the dad, and he was really happy that, that it was staying in the family. And then that son who went in the family business died. Hmm. And so the dog trainer, the other son, decided he had specifically said before he did not want to be in the family business. He wasn't interested in it. And he didn't need to think about it because the family business was going to stay in the family with his brother. His brother dies. And he chooses to give up being a dog trainer and go into the family business instead. That's a really sad story. Mm -hmm. It really is. So, and and, and I knew him for twenty minutes, and they told yeah. me that story. Damn. But I mean, but this is this is me thinking. I keep on thinking about like how, like how unfortunate because he still this the second son still made a choice. He had the ability to stay training those dogs and doing what he loved. But he made a choice that he thought the family business was important. This four like four generation business uh, was important to the point where he chose not to do what he preferred to do, but instead go into this business. Well, far be it for us, because it's a very personal like philosophy thing. Far be it for us to say that that son didn't feel free in making those options. Right. Right. And so he could have been completely free and decided that of his own volition. But I think it would be a real shame if he felt like he didn't have a choice in that. But my question is, is the only option, so you're, you're choosing what to do, 
does it have to be based around personal happiness? Is that what Sartre is trying to push here? Um, no. At least in my interpretation. Sure. So, my... That's literally the only interpret. Well, I have both of your interpretations. Yeah, so but. my 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 estimation of Sartre's... Well, how Sartre would view this guy, right? Um, that, that son who, who made that choice. Right. I think his question would be, you know, did you truly and honestly examine all the possibilities and make that choice based on those possibilities? Mm-hmm. No matter what criterion he used to make that decision, right. was he being honest about it? Because that's clearly, what's important to Sartre. Clearly he had, this son had the option to go in the business, mm-hmm. family business chose not to, Followed his dream and then went back to the family business. Mm-hmm. Like that's why. But the point that's why it was sticking with me. It's yeah. like just an interesting choice. But the but the point for Sartre isn't what choice you make; it's how you make it. Do you make that choice honestly with yourself? Are you truly being honest with yourself right. about that choice? How you're making it? And if you are, then fine. That's good. That's what that's what he would say is living in good faith. I think it's hard to criticize this this son who was the dog trainer without like being inside of his mind and really right. seeing what's going on there. But I would say that even just externally, that seems like a really unfair situation of putting that pressure on him. Like I, I almost wish like of course he can make whatever decision he wanted, but I almost wish he would have just chosen to be the dog trainer. Right. And but the, and I, the don't, dad, I don't know anything about and that. the dad I was talking to was very clear and both him and his wife were very clear they did not pressure the son to get in the family business. They they didn't they didn't need to right. they didn't need to like apply pressure verbally. Or the like pressure, pressure the pressure the pressure was just there. Yeah. Well and that's I think one of the trickiest things to really sort out is, you know, even when people are telling you you don't have to do this. Um, there's still a sense of a sense of obligation, and Sartre would say it's a false sense, right? But a sense of obligation, Sartre. Now, um, <laughs> sorry, I derailed us there. No, you're good. Bit. This it's good stuff. Um, there's so Sartre wrote this play called No Exit, and it's so good. Actually, do I have it? Was it about butt stuff? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's about hell. Yeah, so it it's is. about dying and going to hell. Well, yeah, it's about being dead and already being. But yeah, for sure, it's um, set in. <laughs> it's the well, setting. That, you know the what? setting is hell. I, that's maybe that's an actually, interpretation. But. No, the setting is is explicitly in hell. But but I think what's interesting is there's not really any theological aspect to this play. It's not about like, is this a sin or is that a sin and like things like that. So it's not it's not a Christian play, even though it's sort of. Because Sartre was not a Christian. He was atheist. It, it's about being locked in a room with other people and mm-hmm. having uh, that be your torture for all eternity. Oh, it, it is the play where the line, hell is other people, came from. Oh, interesting. If you've heard that before. I don't know if you have. But, um, yeah, so the setting is there's these three people, a man and two women. One, There's a, a man, there's a straight woman, and a lesbian woman. And they're all in hell. And they're all led in by this demon, whatever, doesn't that he's kind of irrelevant. Uh and, and let's call him Gary. Right. Man, uh, Gary's just getting the <laughs> shit. Gary. Getting shit all over him. Poor yes. Gary. Um <laughs> our next episode is just gonna be an hour Sorry, Gary. to Gary. <laughs> anyway, so um so 
there's like some some sexual dynamics going on in here in this play where um you know the the lesbian woman is hitting on the straight woman who's hitting on the guy who's just kind of not interested is the guy supposed to be gay no no it's just but not not into it um yeah it's fine yeah i mean we're um, in hell I mean, he's more, he's more, he's more like obsessed with himself, not in a narcissistic way exactly, but, um, they're all also grappling with their own, you know, their, the life that they had and what they did that got them in hell, but also, um, being honest with themselves about it. They don't even have a fourth for Euchre. Like it'd be a really hard way to spend eternity. Yeah. There is three player Euchre. It's no, not very good. It's, no, there's not. It's you should go to shit. you should go to hell for saying yeah. that in the first place. Well, I ju- so what's what's Sartre trying to say with this with this play? So, a lot of things, but a lot of it comes down to some of the dialogue between these folks. So, so all right for one for one thing, the guy he's looking at himself, and he he was killed because he was kind of deserting uh, the army. Okay, and and he's looking at himself. He's he's he does not want to be a coward. He's lived his whole life. He's always wanted to be seen as a good person. He married this woman who he, from the gutter, as he says, like she was just some street rats, supposedly, um, to borrow from Aladdin. <laughs> that's the way you describe your wife. That doesn't well, give you a good idea or like a good feeling about who you are. That's the point is he, he's done He's he's sort of lived his life trying to sort of do good things, but things that actually really just sort of benefit him, and he tries to skew them so that he's... This guy would have liaisons with other women, and his wife would serve them coffee in bed in the morning, him and his... Mistress or whatever. Which, as long as you're like, all on board, seems no, like she was a not. great marriage. So, like, so that's the thing is, this guy he he wanted to be a good person, but he wa- didn't really want to be a good person. Right. He wanted to do what he wanted to do and still be considered a good person. Kind of sounds like. Never mind. We're not doing politics today. Um, <laughs> but but this is it's huge. This is a, a this really is a big factor in that whole bad faith conversation. Take that Amy Klobuchar, right? <laughs> Don't you throw a stapler at me? I'm sorry, Gary Klobuchar. <laughs> anyway, uh, so so this really is his his bad faith thing, right? Living in bad faith. This guy was adamant that uh, all the things that he did. Um, not, you know, uh, registering as a, or trying to get out of serving in the army, for example, um, by calling himself a pacifist. He wasn't really a pacifist. He just didn't want to fight because he was a coward. And he didn't want anyone to know that he was a coward. Right. And that's his, that's his big thing. So living in bad faith is what got him in hell. The, the straight woman had this whole, oh, it was a f***ed up story. She... Uh, if I remember correctly, she was married to this one guy, but she went and had this affair and got pregnant and went to Switzerland to have the baby and came back and threw the baby into an iced over lake and murdered her baby. And like, it was this whole, right. Yeah. So, but but, but like, say, she didn't admit it. I was going to say, like, what was the reason she, she did Well, she's the very last person of the three to admit why she was in hell. Um... The first was the lesbian woman, who I think she killed her lover, or her lover was cheating on her, so she killed the lover, and they're putting, you know what I mean, like all uh, murder suicide yeah, kind murder, of thing. Murder will get it done. Well, but again, it's it's not necessarily about the murder 
to start that gets them in hell. I mean, I'm sure that doesn't help, right? It's, it's living, about living in, living in bad. But they're living in bad faith. Exactly. They were not doing, uh, they're not making those free choices. Right. Um, so, or, or not being honest with themselves about their choices. Anyway, <laughs> I, <laughs> I love the ending of this play. It's, I've, I'm a little bit of a sicko, but I think it's a, it's a hysterical ending to the play. So, um, towards the end, they spoiler really all come to terms. Yeah, spoiler alert. At, at the end of the play, they all kind of realize that there is no torture. This is the torture. They're not going to get whips and chains and flames and all that good stuff that we always talk about. Mm-hmm. That, that they will be spending eternity with each other who all drive each other crazy and they all hate. That's their torture. And, and it happens because, I, I just can't remember the character's name, so just the straight woman grabs this paper knife off of the mantle in this room that they're in and tries to stab the lesbian woman to death who just laughs at her and goes, I'm already dead. It's already happened. You can't kill me. And then they all sort of have this moment of, oh, we can't kill. Oh, shit. We can't die. This is it. And then the guy, the last line of the play, the guy goes, well, let's get on with it. <laughs> it cracks me up. That's pretty good. Which, which is an extremely odd thing for a person to say in real life, but it's, it makes sense as the last line of a play. Oh, especially a Sartre right. play, because that's kind of, that's basically his final view on it is, life is absurd. Hmm. Is it- what are you going to do? Do you just... Uh, acknowledge that life is absurd, and y'all, y'all should go watch. Make the, free choices. Be free. Y'all should go watch the Good Place. There, oh, so good. There, there's so many like philosophical little things in there. Uh, I don't know. Directly, I don't know that one directly. <laughs> it was written by Mike Schur, who did Parks and Rec and The Office and stuff like that. But it is, it is great. It is great. Oh, so good. What's uh, what's it about even? Uh, the afterlife. People die and they oh. go. They go to the good place. Oh, okay. Or the bad place. Or the okay. bad place. It's it's a it's, phenomenal. It's hard. Show. Like I, I don't want to describe it too much because if you describe it too much, you kind of ruin it. But it's on Netflix. So. Yeah, or Hulu. Mm. Either of whom could sponsor us at any time. Yeah, if they wanted to. So anyway, <laughs> um, so that that. That's most of Sartre, I think. Um, life is absurd. Acknowledge the absurdity. Make free choices. I, I have this written here, the anguish of existence. Ah, anguish. Anguish is a word that I think Kierkegaard really kind of coined and brought into, I think, the philosophical world. Søren Åby Kierkegaard. But yeah, so, anguish so what's, being what's, what? Yeah, what's, what's anguished about existence? So, like... Maybe this is skipping ahead a little bit, but having expectations of a non-absurd existence and not being able to find it anywhere. Like, that that life is absurd and you're searching for meaning to come out of the universe and tell you, like, this is what it's all about. And the universe 
is not going to provide you with that. Yeah, the yeah. universe has no obligation to like give your life meaning. That's it, on you. Right. And so anguish is this tension between the fact that you're never going to find meaning and the seemingly nearly universal human impulse to find meaning and to place meaning. Right. And I don't mean that in a sense of kind of an essence of humanity, but just something that seems to exist for all of us, be a part of... You'd like your life to have any kind of bigger picture Mm -hmm. rather than just your own experience and then that's the end. Right. Yes, exactly. And this actually is an evolutionary thing. If you want to just to kind of dip into evolutionary psychology really briefly. Sure, yeah. um, That actually is part of what made humanity... Or, or Homo sapien and all these other Homo species pop up from from that sort of animal level bestial, bestial mm-hmm. existence, right? That the level of consciousness that we generally think of as uniquely human sprang up because, in large part anyway, because of our tendency to attribute larger meaning to coincidence, to 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 events. Right. So if if I live my life as part of an organization and I like spread the word of the church or even something as simple as I'm going to like work on this wall to keep out the Mongols or something and I'm going to spend my whole I'm going to spend my whole life like no politics. No politics. Work, sorry. I'm going to spend my life working on this wall. Well, like I can live and die and I can see my contribution to the wall and other people are going to continue carrying it on after I'm done. Right. That's like a comfy, cozy, good feeling existence. And Sartre would say, well, no, like it, that's, uh, you know, you need to get your meaning yourself. And well, uh, but think- he would say you could still that could still be the end up being the meaning of your life. If you go through the process of acknowledging the absurdity of life, looking into the face of that and making the decision that I'm going to make my life about this wall. Right. But you're, but you're a coward. If you never like face the absurdity, face the absurdity of it. Yeah. And it's interesting. This is one of those things where it would be very important to know, not necessarily if uh, these philosophers are, christian or not but if they believe in an afterlife these because, we're getting into all the anti-christian now so well, yeah so that's so, the, no, what i was saying is like this is, you're gonna this have is a now fun, very anti-christian you're gonna have a fundamentally different idea of how you need to spend your time on earth if you think that's all you've got if you think like when you hmm. shuffle off that mortal coil that's all you've got and you need to do what you can with it if your goal at the end is I'm going to live an afterlife and maybe I can go ahead and keep on working on myself or all these different things. Like whether you think the afterlife is more life in a different way or if you think that's the reward and I have to do everything I can here so I can get like the best Mm. package when I move on. Or if this is it, it fundamentally changes the way you look at how you need to spend your time here. Definitely. Well, so, yeah, I think it's important, though, to point out that, I mean, Kierkegaard being a sort of an exception. Søren Åby Kierkegaard. And even that is is not really an exception. Existentialist thought starts at the point of 
atheism. Yeah, like kind of denying denying God is is a big part yeah. of. I mean, kind of figured, Argue, to, arguably. Yeah. I mean, up to a point, and and you 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 did some stuff on Nietzsche in preparation. So sure, Nietzsche famously said, "God is dead. We've killed him." He's not really talking about God. He's talking about the that would be a bold claim if right, you, right? If, if if he meant that literally, like, right? Like that's yeah. pretty bold. We but the a, question is, what is a big heaven about? gun? Sure, shot it up there. <laughs> what, what, what does Nietzsche mean by God? So, uh, like in in a way, it's like the the zeitgeist. It's the grasp of society that religion has or or had. So. If you look at society, like, with Christianity, it's sort of like this complete picture. They'll tell you what to do, like, every point in your life. And if you strip that away and you just have the society now, without Christianity, like, God is dead and we have killed him, there's, not only is there a vacuum there, that there's uh, this role in people's life that's not being filled, but also, like, well, what do we what do we do now? Super. Absolutely. Like, I agree 100%. And, and it's, I, I think this is one of those things that's fairly open to interpretation. But I think most people would kind of circle the drain around some concept of basically Nietzsche meant that the pursuit for universal truth is dead. That humanity's Whoa. search for... Can you rewind that and... And say it slower. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> Nietzsche, by saying God is dead, what he really, I think, I think means is that humanity's search for universal truth is okay, dead. Okay, yeah. And what does that mean? That means it's getting replaced by very individual searches for truth. Everybody's looking mm. for their own truth. Oh, okay. Um, so this is that uh, Nietzsche's. I think so, Nietzsche is his, his own episode. Sure. Um, but, but I think this is really where he takes that existentialism away from the Kierkegaard leap of faith to Christianity thing and says, no, Kierkegaard, I, I said that Kierkegaard, for Kierkegaard, the leap of faith was into Christianity. And I meant that very personally. Søren Åby Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard himself took his personal right. leap of faith his into Christianity. Leap of faith was Christianity. He he, was it's not that he was prescribing that same he, leap of faith to everybody. He thinks everybody should take a leap of faith, but Bingo. that does not need to be Christianity for exactly. Everybody. But but then Nietzsche would say, "Well, huh, yeah, but if you take that leap, and of course Nietzsche's writing later. I think it's, I think it's Nietzsche. Nietzsche. I think you're right. Yeah. Whatever. Anyway, so Nietzsche. So Nietzsche Nietzsche, is a little bit Nietzsche. later. Nietzsche. <laughs> Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche. I, uh, he he's saying essentially, well, if you take that, if you were to take this leap of faith back into Christianity, you're now reindulging yourself in a very prescriptive world. That is super the opposite of what you should be doing. So, uh, if, if you are unfamiliar with Nietzsche and you don't think you know Nietzsche, have you ever heard the phrase "that which kills you or that which doesn't kill you only makes you stronger"? Because that is a big part of Nietzsche. That like comes from <laughs> that him. which kills you makes you stronger. My bad. No, I think that that's Wait, what he start meant to say. I think it was actually a typo on Nietzsche's part. Ah, shit. <laughs> no, but I think we all got what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, yes, we did. It's definitely wrong. There are a bunch of stuff that can doesn't kill you that can also make you way weaker. Well, you might become a <laughs> sorry to stronger, take it there. I don't know. You might be a stronger character even if you're physically you weaker. Yeah. By over by overcoming obstacles that you And again, yeah. it's it's all about like being able to parse out what these things actually mean cuz very rarely is it going to be 
on the face. He like says it's a this. literal thing. Right. So I feel like as far as um, Sartre is concerned, we've mostly covered our covered the, the basics. We covered um, our asses. He's he's really interesting, and I think what makes Sartre the existentialist concepts are very relatable in our day and age, right? Um, but I think what makes Sartre uh, cut above the rest is his writings are, are accessible for the most part. Um, novels and plays, not treatises on epistemology and shit like that. It's also a weird thing because, like, Sartre is so much a part of our societal thought that he, he kind of, like, exists like a water to a fish. Like, if you don't point out the fact that, uh, you know, Sartre said this stuff and that's where it comes from, it just kind of exists in, in people's heads. Like, we... We have sort of accepted existentialism, I would say, like a, a lot of people have. Yeah. Have yeah. this have this existentialist it's, thought, even if they don't think that's what it's called. No, I think yeah, I think you're absolutely right that those those basic concepts of existentialism have really sort of become the building blocks, the foundational blocks of of our modern society in our in a modern liberal society and i mean again liberal in the classical sense of individual freedom individuality things like that so what about this camus guy so i fucking love camus albert camus albert camus albert camus was born in algeria algeria um he's algerian but that was, was french. during french occupation yeah, he, he was, was a white guy he was a french person he moved to he paris sounds, in the 40s he sounds like a very soft cheese so he <laughs> need a nice brie with he a, was with not a Camus. <laughs> he was not soft. Um, he actually was like he was an athlete. He played like I think semi pro soccer or something. Like this is the early early 1900s. So okay. it's, the scene is a little bit different. But he was handsome guy, good looking, real not Sounds a lot like of like social tech. I kind of do. Um, the, so Sartre was kind of famously ugly. Was he shaped like a coffee cup by any he chance? He was roughly Take that, shaped Gary. like a Gary mug. So In the cosmic sense, he was about the size of a coffee mug. But yeah. Sartre had, even though he, I mean, he he was allegedly, well, you can look up a picture of, of either any of these guys, um, but he was ugly, Sartre was. That's mean. Um, there's no. It's not even. It's he not. Called, he called, he called himself. He called ugly. himself ugly. Yeah, he has he this whole passage in his autobiography about like he, the first time he came home from a haircut and his mother looked at him and ran up to her room crying <laughs> because he was so ugly. He, 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 had a, he had a lazy eye. He was not very tall. Uh, I guess he just like considered himself like he wasn't a looker. Why do you guys think he became a philosopher? I mean, right. Any thoughts? Yeah, because <laughs> um, he couldn't be a got, play got all, mansion. Got all that philosophy. Have, yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, there's a <laughs> there's a whole side episode to do on Sartre's life more biographically because he and Simone de Beauvoir had this like sixty year open relationship. Where they would write letters to each other, describing in Graphic. disturbing detail their liaisons with other people. Hot. It was like really weird. He's, uh, but at any rate, I so Camus. Girl, I found a girl who's really into ugly guys. <laughs> Probably someone's fetish. So, but she was real hot though. Yeah. She was hot, and she's sort of the the founder of second wave feminism. And I would love to do a whole episode on her. She's fascinating. You can't but do a whole episode name? on everything. I would love to. 
That I'm going to do a whole episode on Gary. Gary! What was her name? Simone de Beauvoir. Oh, Simone de Beauvoir. Yeah. So, oh. Um, well, you had mentioned her yeah. before. I, oh, Simone yeah. de Beauvoir. I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't know her prior to this conversation. Yeah, so she's interesting. But, but that's before. not that's neither here nor there. Camus was friends with Sartre and de Beauvoir during the 40s in Paris they 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 hung out all the time they had their whole circle of friends they were they were they were close they were writers they were both really into both Sartre and Camus formed this real close friendship over both theater and over jazz and what they really really loved about jazz especially but also with theater was that live in the moment nature of it um that it, they felt like it really represented real life because it's not as prescripted um theater has a script yes but it's a live performance it's not a recording right jazz all of that the reason they both really loved jazz was the improvisation right um but Camus, they would have loved whose line is it anyway oh my god i know right (laughs) i would love to see them on that right yeah anyway so camus (laughs) all of this discussion that we've just been having all these questions we've been asking camus would say all of those questions and discussion is dancing around one big question. The real question, the one, the most important question that everything else, every other philosophical question basically boils down to. Suicide. 42. Should you commit suicide? Oh. So, um... Kind of a morbid guy. Kind of. So, spoiler, his answer is no. Okay, so we're not... Don't And, and maybe worth Sweet. a quick pause... In, in the storyline to say, if anyone out there is considering suicide, and please, I can please tell you... Please seek help. There are please, there's phone a numbers hotline. to call. Yeah. Um, there's a bunch of them. In fact, mini fact check right here. Yeah. Mini fact check. Hi. Seriously, if you're having trouble, there are people who care, and there are places you can contact right now. After you get this information, pause the podcast and call text, or get online and chat with one of these organizations. Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Or if you'd rather, they have a chat option right on their website, and that website is suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Suicidepreventionlifeline.org. They have specialists for specific issues, no matter if you're a youth, a veteran, LBGTQ, uh, dealing with loss, if you're a survivor, there are so many different options that they have and specialists for each of these areas, and they just seem cool. So if you need help, reach out. Also, I wanted to come up with an option for people who find it easier to open up through texting. There's an organization called Crisis Text Line. Just text HOME to 741741. That's the word HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741741. We love you, and asking for help isn't weakness, it's strength. You can do this. Mini fact check. No, uh, so, so, so Camus. It was Andy's fault. <laughs> Camus, Camus. So, so what, what is... Uh, philosophical suicide. So you have literal yes. suicide where you kill yourself, but there's also this idea of philosophical suicide. What's that? That is basically living in bad faith. Philosophical suicide 
would be taking that Kierkegaard leap of faith. Søren Åby Kierkegaard. Saying, I'm just going to do this because every, nothing really matters and life is absurd. And so I'm just going to kind of pluck at random some path or maybe not at random. But You ever, just you ever gonna, heard the phrase like turn your brain off and enjoy it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just I'm just going to do it. It's, it's that waiter in Sartre's cafe. So to avoid philosophical suicide, you need to keep these questions open. Like, these questions are not solved. These questions are not, like, there's an easy answer to them. There probably isn't an answer to them. Right. So you can avoid philosophical suicide by thinking about these things, by keeping the question alive, by... uh having like your own struggle with these questions and and it's supposed to be ongoing i mean kind of unrelenting to a certain extent although camus really wouldn't say like he would say you still need to enjoy your life that's but but um so so yeah yeah absolutely this philosophical suicide is just as bad as physical suicide to camus um, so, like, I know we've probably covered it already, but can you give me an example of someone who, like, that person has clearly committed philosophical suicide? Like, yeah, I mean, if, I think if that, you get a prescription for your life so and you follow it without question. That's, yeah, I mean, these, there's lots of examples. I, I mentioned that the waiter in Sartre's Cafe, mm-hmm. uh, Camus would say that that man has committed philosophical, philosophical suicide. You hear that, <laughs> Gary? That's you! Sorry, guys. Nathan's contributions to this episode is mostly just railing on Gary. So anyway, there's a a uh, 2017 movie. It's on. uh, It was a Netflix movie called The Discovery, and The Discovery is all about a scientist who proves that heaven is real without without question. He proves it, releases it to society, and suicide rates go through the roof. 50, 60% suicide rates. People, like, going home to their parents' house for Christmas, finding them dead because everybody wants to go to heaven and why are we waiting anymore? Mm -hmm. If we know that heaven exists and it's this beautiful place, and I just, like, I think about that all the time of, like, what, like, if there, if you do believe in this next thing, does that make this thing less valuable? Does it make this thing any less worth like fully exploring like living in good faith so i mean as the resident christian i would (laughs) say that there's a couple of problems with that the first and most important being that killing yourself is would be inherently sinful without repentance sure sure i think so you probably wouldn't wind up in heaven in the first place right but more maybe more importantly than that um even in Christianity where there's, uh, you know, you have this life and then you have another life, there's a special importance that's put on your actions during the time that you're alive. Right. There are things that you can do in life that it's critical that you do during life that you can't just make up for in the afterlife necessarily. And so I would say that, like, even if you do believe that there's an afterlife and you're going to heaven or hell or purgatory or whatever, um, I would say there's there's still an importance that's put on the here and now. Mm-hmm. I would totally agree with that. 
And if there wasn't, then, like, we would be extinct real quick. Yeah. And, and then well, there wouldn't be that much going on. I don't actually remember Discovery very well. The guy, uh, one of the guys from How I Met Your Mother was in it. I remember that. Um, the tall guy. Uh, but there is something about it. <laughs> like, there's, there's something like they, they knew that suicide was cool or something. Hmm. I don't really remember. Well, so, so probably don't. I mean, suicide, philosophical or otherwise. Right. No one has proven there's a heaven. Um, are you familiar with the myth of Sisyphus? So, as we have uh, discussed on the podcast before, the answer to that question is always no. I still ask it for dramatic purposes. I mean, yes. Can you please tell? uh, Or well, can you please tell us about Sisyphus? I I ask a question like that because if you say if you say no, if you don't know, then I'll tell you. But if you do know, there would be a great chance for you to actually have some voice on the podcast. Uh, No. Okay, so Sisyphus. The myth of Sisyphus is a, is a Greek myth, and this is one of um, Camus' essays was sort of around the myth of Sisyphus. This is a big. This is maybe his most famous work, possibly. Um, and so, the myth of Sisyphus. There was a king in ancient okay. Greece. I feel like as soon as you say it, I'm going to know it because I you definitely know. Will. I know the name Sisyphus. Yes. So, so this this ancient Greek king. Um, was not a big fan of the gods. He kind of was generally a tool of, towards the gods. Yeah, take that guy. So the gods were like, all right, well, it's time for you to die then. And Hades <laughs> went to... Hades, the god of the underworld, went to collect his soul, so to speak. Um, they didn't believe in souls in cross, the Greek Cross mythology. the river sticks yes. and stuff. Yeah. Well, he went to go collect them anyway. Uh, they did not get to the river sticks right away because Sisyphus says to Hades, Hey, I have, um, you know, before we go, really quickly, I have these manacles that I would really like to test out if you wouldn't mind putting them on real quick. And Hades is like, Yeah, sure, all right. Hades is dumb. Well... <laughs> Was. I think he's dead as well. Ah, uh, Yeah. Um, so anyway. I thought you were about to go into the Death of Hallows. No. Um, <laughs> and then Sisyphus puts on the invisibility cloak. He does not. Instead, off. Hades is trapped. Sisyphus throws him in a closet and locks him in there and just goes about his life. And um, You think the other gods would notice, like, hey, I haven't seen Hades around in a well, while. Well, eventually, people started not dying. <laughs> For instance, um, one example is this guy, in uh, this warrior in battle, gets shot like 12 times by arrows and doesn't, he just kind of keeps on going. Yeah, so, they wouldn't necessarily notice because Hades dwells in the underworld. Like, yeah, that's true. And the rest like of the gods show live on, he was on Mount Olympus, Olympus or whatever. So right. they, they wouldn't group they breakfast wouldn't, in the morning. They wouldn't be missing him necessarily. But um but they do start to notice when people stop dying and they investigate to figure it out and they go release Hades and Sisyphus is taken to the underworld where <laughs> he is sentenced to roll a boulder up a hill. This is what yeah, I remember. This is what most people remember. So his this sentence, is also the important part for is, Well, yeah, yes, it is. Um, so, so his sentence is to roll this boulder up a hill, but whenever he gets to the top of the hill, the it slips or he something funny goes by and he laughs and it boulder goes right back down to the bottom of the hill. Right, cursed, and, cursed to do this for eternity. For yeah. eternity, All, he's still doing it now. 
still going on. And I maybe I'm confusing this with another god, but um, doesn't he get his intestines ripped out by a bird every day? That is like somebody that is different. Oh, that, that's, that's that is Prometheus. A Prometheus, yeah, okay, he stole man. fire. He stole man. fire from Olympus. But um, well, let's do some. Let's do a Greek myths episode though, for sure. Um, but so Sisyphus is given this Sisyphean punishment. It's where we get the term Sisyphean. <laughs> right? It's it's weird that they just had that, like, ready yeah. to go. Like, yeah. When Lou Gehrig's got Lou Gehrig's disease, like, how'd they tell him? <laughs> yeah. You've got you, you disease. disease. <laughs> um, that's pretty so sure funny. That's a Simpsons joke. I'm pretty sure that that's really sad. That's, ter- that's um, a terrible joke. <laughs> and it's really funny. Um, this Sisyphean task is to Camus akin to our daily lives. We, you know, get up. Eat, go to work, come home, eat, go to bed. Man, Get up, that is eat, a bummer. Right. So Lighten it's up, same Camus. shit over and over and over again. And so Camus says, well, this... Go outside. This is the go absurdity of life, right? Go this dancing. Is, this is the absurdity. Go bowling. Um, Camus' solution, and all three of these, you know, um, there's the leap of faith for Kierkegaard, there's... Just be free, live free, um, you know, acknowledge the absurdity and live free for Sartre. For Camus, and I think this is maybe part of why he resonates with me, but for Camus, the solution is lean into it. Do that absurd <laughs> task and do it with a spiteful grin on your face. Fuck you, gods. I'm going to roll this boulder up and I'm going to laugh when it rolls back to the bottom and I'm going to go roll it up again with my middle fingers high in the air. So, so the big thing about that would work. I'm trying to think. Like, <laughs> yeah, you, you'd have to. It's not that's a great. That's a visual joke, but, but yeah, yeah. The big thing for Camus is the rebellion. Like, yeah, it's it's not that <laughs> Sisyphus is going to say, "I'm not going to roll the boulder up anymore." It's right. that all right, I'll roll you damn boulder. <laughs> in, in his state of mind, uh, Sisyphus is rebelling, mm. and that yeah, the idea that. You sure you can punish me. You can make me do what you want me to do. You can make me go to the place you want me to go. You can do this, but you can't make me feel any particular way about it. Yes. You, like yeah. I I can go ahead and exert my free will as much as I want in terms of how I'm going to react to what you told like forced me to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And that's pretty badass. Yeah, forced in in air quotes here because as an existentialist, Camus would never say that you he was forced. You always have a choice. There's always a choice. But and this is kind of the subtlety of some of Camus' philosophy is up to a point that choice may be how you feel about it. Yeah. There and and this is where say Simone de Beauvoir really kind of comes in with with the second wave feminism because she says she'll she comes out and says. Well, it's all fine and well and good for you white guys to say, oh, you, you're free to do anything. But for a woman, or that's a not really color so or true. Like any number of people. Yeah, that there point. are literal un- insurmountable obstacles in that the access to those things is literally blocked for women or for people of color and stuff. Wow. So um, she would say, yeah, at that point, like, you're not just like free to do whatever you want, but you are free to feel however you want. And sometimes that is that is how you seize your freedom back. And and this is why I think Simone de Beauvoir is so fascinating. She's real cool. But for Camus, yeah, rebellion. Fuck you, gods, says Sisyphus <laughs> as he rolls that boulder. Anyway, so um so Camus 
tragically died in 1960 in a car accident. Um, kind of a, I'm not going to say a funny story, but a, an odd story. He it was supposed to take a train with his family, had the train ticket in his pocket, but at the last minute, his like publisher said, Nah, let, let them take the train. Let's drive. We'll talk about like your new book or whatever. And, and they decided and, to drive. You can't do that And the they train. both died. Well, I don't know exactly. I wasn't really um, like there for the conversation. They, but the point is he died in his car it, accident with the unpunched train ticket in his pocket. Like. Do they call that the day the Camusic died? Yeah, I haven't guys, heard that. No. I, said, I, I haven't died. seen that in any works of literature, but I may have missed it. So important, <laughs> importantly, um, Camus and a few of the others have this idea that um, you can't reconcile this with religion. You can't be religious and be a, a good existentialist at the same time. That they're incompatible. Wow. I would say if there's a specific point that you guys wanted to get to, it probably makes sense for us to start coming in for a landing to that specific point well, now. I, so, so if you're telling me like you can't be Christian and an existentialist at the same time, I would say, <laughs> fuck you, I do what I want. I never said well, that. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, no, I totally get that. And Kierkegaard would agree with you, 100%. Although the Kierkegaard's contemporary Christians would not. Um, but again, wouldn't the nature of an afterlife totally change the way you lived your life here. So or, an like, existential yeah. form no. or inform like inform something about what that afterlife is. I think that I think an existentialist would say no. I, I think that they would say you need to uh in order to really seize your freedom, you have to be in the moment. Um I in fact I've heard existentialism described very amusingly as Buddhism without the happiness. <laughs> so like, it's very be in the moment, do, you know, do what you do you, boo, basically. So we had this question we didn't, we didn't run back to that was, is the ultimate goal happiness? And oh. I think that that depends on how you boil it down. So if I decide that there's like some duty that I need to fulfill and it's going to make me miserable, but that's going to give me an overarching happiness, you know, then, I mean, it depends on taking, what, taking what do you care of the family business? Yeah. What are you, what are you defining as happiness? Like, right. um, that's, that's a question of like, are you talking about like my, my long-term feeling of happiness? Or are you talking about like my immediate feeling of pleasure? When I think a lot of people, a lot of philosophers would say happiness is irrelevant. Like there are certain things that there are certain obligations that we have. Um, I would say you're always pursuing happiness. Like even uh, let's take somebody who's just like sad all the time and just kind of wallows in the feeling of sadness. That gives them a sort of satisfaction. Maybe not call it happiness, but that right. gives them a certain satisfaction about their life. I would say that we're kind of always all of us pursuing happiness. So I guess... I, I, I would have to diverge here. I don't, I would, I would have to say no, I don't think that existentialism would put happiness at the forefront. I think that it would put honesty yeah. at the forefront. That, that you have whole, to live honestly. We keep on bringing, coming back to that good Acknowledge faith. the absurd 
Right. And, you know, understand the choice that you're making in, in full. Yes, exactly. Good living in good faith, um, which ultimately is really what Sartre and Camus also agree on, although they have some, a different spin on it. But like the big ultimate point here is whatever it is you're doing, make sure that you are truly honestly doing it for the right reasons. Self-examination, uh, right? As, as Socrates said, the, the unexamined life is not worth living. Yeah. And, and, you know, to take it all the way back to Socrates again. I, so I have a problem with Socrates there. Like, like probably you should examine your life, but like, I don't know that that's, you should throw out the baby with the bathwater. <laughs> like the unexamined life is not worth living. Like maybe just you should examine your life. Well, I guess in terms of existentialism, if, you know, if life is absurd, right? We're starting from the sort of base premise that life is absurd. Yeah. There is no, underlying meaning to any of it only the meaning that you give it yeah then to not examine your life is to commit philosophical suicide and i would say well i mean you have whatever opinion you want but i i would say that that life is not really it's not being lived at all let alone worth living because you are not embracing Reality. You can sort of turn yourself into an automaton and, and who's going and, yep. through the motions. And I think there are a you're avoiding of reality. That. Yeah, there's a, a whole sect of American voter voters who do. Th- okay. <laughs> no, 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 well, did did anybody have any like sort of wrapping up? Well, I, let me I let me say, say because you were going to take this position of asking lots of questions, but not a lot really came out. What other? I mean, did did you have any anything else? About, I felt like I did. I, I just explain it that well, or yeah, no, I I tried to ask questions where Pat. I thought they popped up. It would be interesting because I'm sure this is one of our early episodes, and so it'll be interesting to see what people say in the comments. About what what didn't necessarily make sense because people mm-hmm. are coming to this uh, this discussion from all different perspectives, all different levels of uh, knowledge about who these guys are and everything mm-hmm. like that. And I felt like personally, I I paid attention. I didn't fall asleep once. No, no, it, it's it is um, like classically hard to wrap your mind around. Like I could probably recite a lot of the facts about it. Without really getting to the real essence of it. Right. I will say that one lady in No Exit did throw the baby out with the bathwater, though. She did. Uh, actually, she kept the bathwater. I think she just threw the baby out. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. Dang. Well, listen, you don't want to waste resources. That's true. Well, then, yeah, it's yeah. protein. Really, I mean, we're talking about throwing the bathwater out with the baby. <laughs> So, speaking of precious moments. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Precious moments. What you got, Pat? So this week I had a, uh, well, I guess two weeks ago, um, I had a, a really interesting time. So I had a really good time visiting the auto show. Oh, okay. And uh, went for my mom's birthday. And um, while we were at the auto show, we went up on the Ferris wheel at the IX Center. 
Yes. And we were at the top of the Ferris wheel, and there was all this smoke that was coming from the direction of my mom's house. And so she's like, "That there's something that's burning. There's like this huge... And I was like, oh, really? It turns out it was on her street. Oh, my like, God. It was like a mile and a half away. But it was on her street, um, so we, like, walked down and, you know, there was all these fire crews and pouring water and uh, all this smoke. So that was a very interesting time. Fortunately, nobody got hurt in the fire. It was an unoccupied Fantastic. apartment building or condominium building that they had been doing construction on. And hopefully it's insured, so nobody really... <laughs> I'm guessing... It's highly, really highly, highly insured, insured, and probably not that much work had been done on it. I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, it, it, I've seen the Sopranos. I know what's up. It had been basically complete, from what I understand. Oh, that was a bad time to burn it down. Then you need to do that at the beginning of the process. Timing is everything. Yeah. So, but um, so that was interesting. Really good, good scene. With my and mom. Arson. And uh, we got to see um, a replica of the DeLorean from Back to the Future. Yeah. Um, they had the Knight Rider. Um, they had something else. I, I got to sit, I, when I was a kid, I got to sit in Kit. Oh. In the Knight Rider car. Cool. It was very exciting. There was a football game on. I was like, that's, that's unfortunate. They had the red light in the like, front that a, bounces back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're the, uh, I forget the actor's name, but. Oh, he, they had the 18 van. Yeah. That's awesome. Nice. I think they were all made by the same company that they were not the originals, that they, Any, were, uh, they were replicas, but... The Ghostbusters? I did not see Curse. a ghost, Ghostbusters there. Oh, so, this week's been wonky for me, but I think Pete Mayor Pete dropped out of the race. He was my favorite, um, kind of for a while, although not, not by a lot, because there were several candidates that I had been excited about. None of those candidates that I was excited about are left in the race. I can get up to vote for anybody. Ex- you Listen, can get it up. Some Bloomberg <laughs> would take some serious soul searching on my part. But I just think drinking, like it, just like same thing. Not to be because the fun thing is the uh, I believe the primaries this year are on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, so oh, you mean. So you're going to vote? The primaries and then go drink like about all it? the way. In, oh, you mean you mean Ohio's, Ohio's primaries? primaries. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. I yeah. believe Ohio's primaries are on St. Yeah. Patrick's Day. Which are is you saying you're weird... going to need to get wasted to vote for Bloomberg? Is Bloomberg. that what you're saying? Bloomberg, so, yes. The good news is you don't have I don't to even drink. You don't have to because in the primaries there will be other Democrats on the ballot. Right. Um, it's the actual election in November Three less that you might have ago. to get drunk in order to cast that vote. Right. No, I just, I had done the, yeah. I had, like looked at the calendar and figured nice. out it was the same day. Yeah. I was like, that is going to be some interesting polling stations. Also, um, you need to live in good faith and consider all of your op- other options besides voting Bloomberg. for Bloomberg. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're not fated. Oh, we we could talk about determinism at some point. Mm, totally. Yeah. Talk about fate. Um, uh, but you're not fated to vote for Bloomberg. You can do whatever you want. And uh, the, the other thing I noticed was the Libertarian primary is on the same day. Oh, I but don't know. I, like, I, have, I, don't I could not tell you. Here's the thing. You want to know about the Libertarian candidates? Because I actually do know. I'll, just, I'll give you a quick overview. Sure. So there's first there's a guy who's a, a vet. Um, not a veterinarian, but a veteran who wants to, on day one, when he takes office, he says, 
he will declare bankruptcy for the U.S. government and dissolve the federal government. So that's one candidate. Man, that kind, that kind <laughs> of rules. Because I'm voting for him. <laughs> that kind of rules. That, no, it doesn't. This guy is a f***ing lunatic. Um, what the hell is his name? Um, I can't think of his name right now. Is he a billionaire? No. Um, there's another guy. His name is Mike Bloomberg. Who? Oh, there's Lincoln Chaffee, who you may That's remember from 2016 name. Democratic primaries was one of the three others besides Hillary and. Um, oh yeah, I knew Sanders. they were there. I just didn't there was know. O'Malley, there was Chaffee, and there was another guy. I forget. I actually kind of liked O'Malley. He was okay, but he was boring. Right. They were all um, boring. Bernie wasn't yeah. boring. Bernie wasn't boring. Hillary was boring. Anyway, screw Hillary. So, Aww. not literally, because that'd be gross. Um, <laughs> Even Bill knows. Anyway. Man, you are so getting assassinated after this episode. Oh my so god, I'm just let, suicided so just hard. Let you know. Kimu will be very disappointed. Super assassinated. Um, so, that's the, so Lincoln Chaffee, basically, he was, he was already a Republican reject when he ran as a Democrat in the primaries in 2016. And I was down to Libertarian. Yes. Like, <laughs> and we're not super figures. interested either, let me tell you. Um, there's a, all right, yeah, that's fine. There's a couple more. There's a convicted felon. There's a pedophile. There's, it's a, it's, it's a, a rogues gallery of libertarians. Man, I do want to, I want to do some information about this. Uh, there's a, check out, <laughs> um, a podcast by Andrew Heaton. It's called Political Orphanage. And he does an episode, he did an episode very recently where he actually interviewed all of the libertarian candidates. Awesome. The only one I oddly enough leave that out though, so people don't listen to other podcasts. Oh, it's a really good podcast. You're the only podcast, um, right? Clearly. So the only other like libertarian candidate is Vermin Supreme, who granted is actually is running. That count? Does he? So he is. is he's he's a actually libertarian. A, so he since 2016, he actually has decided to run a legitimate campaign on legitimate points mm. and i mean he's still doing a satire thing but like he's 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 completely shattered the fourth wall this time around he's trying to run it sort of legit like yeah i'm saying free ponies for everybody the reason i'm saying that mm. is because the government spends enough money on the military that they could actually just divert half of that money and give a free pony to everybody that's how much money that it's you know he's right. using it as satire he always has but Wild. people have trouble seeing through the satire because he wears a fucking boot on his head. But I love Vermin Supreme. He's fin- so he's a fantastic satirist. He's actually quite smart. Anyway, this this political orphanage podcast will take you through all those. Awesome. My wife's birthday was yesterday. That was awesome. Yeah, um, happy birthday, sir. Uh, happy birthday, birthday, Sarah. You you heard happy her birthday, voice Sarah. in the last episode with Lolita, and. Uh, <laughs> She is, like, it's weird, like, knowing for a fact that you've married up, like, she's (laughs) smarter than I am, she makes way more money than I do, she's, like, insanely hotter than I am, it's, like, wild. Um, That's not too hard, though. She is not funnier than I am. (laughs) Uh, I'm just, for the audience's reference, Nathan is devilishly handsome. No. It's true. No, I'm a four, she's a nine, I don't know how it happened. (laughs) But the other thing is, it was a busy, busy driving weekend. Uh, we had really bad weather here in Cleveland. And whenever there's bad weather, it means that more people want rides and fewer drivers want to give those rides. So the surge goes up. I had, like, record profits this weekend. It was very good. Have you ever broken down during a ride? 
Like no. you needed a flat tire or something? I have been pulled over. That's really awkward. Oh, really? <laughs> but, and I will say it was not my fault. Okay. But, yeah. Um, but all I did w- during the ride was I apologized profusely. That was a one, I, that was a one star drive for sure. <laughs> well, no, because I gave it to him for free. As soon as the, as soon as I was pulled over, I was like, I'm really sorry. This is not your fault. I'm going to go ahead and cover the rest of the ride myself. And I ended it right there and then just drove him the rest of the way for free. Yeah. But the nice thing was, since I ended it right there, they had to give me my, the, like, they gave me my rating right there in the car instead of, like, because oh. we didn't know, like, how, I didn't know how long the cop was going to stop me or whatever. So right. Other stuff that, one thing that we didn't talk about, because uh, we had our episode about quantum physics, Freeman Dyson died this week. Uh, this week. Uh, he was 96, and he came up with something called the Dyson Sphere. He did a lot Ooh. of other different stuff during his lifetime, but he came up with this thing called the Dyson Sphere. There's a Kurgazat uh, video about it that you should definitely watch. Um, but it is next level bonkers amazing to think about in terms of how we could uh, reach the next level as a species. Right. If, you, if you've if you heard of like type 1, type 2, type 3 civilizations, that's... that's this, would, this would take us up to the... We're type 1 now. And this would take us I up think to we're the, like type 0. 0.5. <laughs> right. I'll have to look at it. Right. But this would t- take us up to the next level. It, it would basically be free energy for, like, more energy than we could possibly use by building a sphere around the sun of inward-facing solar panels. <laughs> so you're collecting. So you're collecting 100 percent of the energy of yeah. the sun, like and then, the output of the just sun, go straight to the fucking source, and yeah. then using a beam to beam that energy back towards Earth, oh, like Star Trek, or. Any other or any other planet that we chose to like, and happen inhabit. after we destroy this one? So right. it's a it's a wild we're idea. Pretty close to doing. And people don't think no about politics. and people don't think about how important energy is. But energy is everything. I wouldn't know. I don't have any. Yep. In bed. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening to Be to Dead Source. Uh, I think this has been a good episode, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We definitely didn't talk about a lot of politics. No. No. Uh, I think that, um, I mean, if Pat wouldn't have kept bringing it up every 10 seconds. Booty Judge 2020? Oh, sad trombone. Uh, okay, bye. So, yeah, I mean, I want to thank you guys for, for listening today. And Oh, definitely nobody made it to this part of the episode. Yeah. Already, yeah. <laughs> Tuned out like 10 minutes uh, in. Well, that's waiting for more Gary jokes. The thing is, that's oh, the absurdity sorry, of it. That's the absurdity of it. So I want to thank you all for being free and turning this episode off at an appropriate time. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> right now. Now, I okay. really need to come up with a catchphrase. Okay, bye. Like when we start, we'll I will try and talk and count to ten silently, and then these guys will be jacking and interrupt a bunch of times. No, it's so hard to not. That's really funny. It's talk, there, it's talk there, for ten seconds to, to let him count to ten without <laughs> saying anything. Yes. Well, because we have, the more tense it gets, the more funny it is. Yeah. I know how that feels. Okay. Anyway. Count. <laughs> Ha 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 ha!
<laughs> you son of a bitch.